All right, thank you uh, for leading us in worship and song this morning, team. Really appreciate it. It's really fun to, to sit out there and, and to worship. Just a different experience altogether. So really appreciate you guys, um, all, the, all the ways that you serve. Uh, my name is Levi Brennan. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. And usually this is my spot. If you didn't know that, my spot is over here with a guitar, typically. Uh, and, um, but this Sunday morning is a little bit different. I'm going to be preaching. Occasionally I preach. It's just kind of irregular. Whenever it seems like we need someone, um, the, my number gets called. So, uh, so here I am uh, today, and it's just an honor. I, I do enjoy bringing the word and um, looking forward to just kind of how God speaks to us through his word this morning. So um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Thank you, Jesus, for, uh, for your word, Lord. Um, it is food for our souls, Jesus. We'd be lost. We'd be lost without your word. Um, and we were lost, many of us, uh, for a long time uh, prior to hearing and knowing, believing and understanding your word. And so thank you, God. You took the initiative. Um, you, it was your, uh, your first step toward us, Lord, to reveal yourself um, through your word. You reveal yourself in creation in lots of different ways, Jesus, but you've given us such clarity uh, when we open up our Bible and we just, we hear from you and it's wisdom to, uh, for us, God, and it's food for our souls. So um, make it that this morning. Give us uh, humility as we consider uh, your, your word to us. Um, give us, uh, just be gracious to us to be able to apply that and appropriate that uh, word to our lives today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I have a question for you. Have you ever noticed how good opportunities in your life sometimes uh, rise to the surface hidden agendas that you might have? Let me give you an example. Uh, an example of vacation, perhaps. Great opportunity to go on vacation. You're think I'm going on vacation right after the service today. And you're thinking about vacation. You got ideas of what vacation is going to look like. And you have a certain agenda attached to those to that vacation. And, but you have a spouse, and your spouse sees things a certain way too. And you might have kids, and they can all compete with your particular agenda. And when that happens, there's usually some kind of tension, and you got to talk through some stuff. Good opportunity, hidden agendas kind of come to the surface. Or it's Saturday, and you think you have a day off. You think it's a clear... I remember this as a teenager. It seemed like it happened all the time. It probably didn't, but it felt like it was all the time. It's Saturday, mom and dad haven't communicated anything about plans on this particular Saturday, uh, so I have kind of made my own plans, haven't talked to my parents, because why would you do that, and uh, calling friends, and you kind of got this idea, and you get up in the morning, and you start making your way, and uh, you meet dad in the kitchen, who has just minted a list uh, with your name attached to it, and the list is all the things that we're going to get done today as a family. It's a cleanup day, and it starts with the house, and then we're moving to the garage, and then we're doing the gutters, and surprise, not a day off. Your agenda and my agenda are two different things. There's a clashing of the wills a little bit, and then we're all faced with the question right away, who's going to budge? And based on what reason is someone going to budge? And uh, it just on and on it goes. Good opportunities oftentimes, often expose our hidden agendas, and that is the kind of tension that we're going to uh, dive into uh, today. We're going to be in the book of Mark. 
And the tension is between Jesus and, and his disciples. And, and it has to do with what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it really mean? And it has to do with agendas and a different uh, idea of what that, what that actually entails. So um, grab your Bible, your, uh, your copy of God's Word, and, and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And when you get there, turn to verse... 34. Find verse 34 is where we're going to be starting off today. I'll give you a little bit of a quick context here because we haven't been in Mark lately. Mark can be kind of divided into a couple different sections. You have a, you know, a, a, the, the section we're reading here this morning is kind of kind of the, the very middle of these two sections of Mark. And up until now, this first half of the book of Mark, Jesus has been incredibly popular. He's casting out demons. He's performing amazing miracles. Crowds are like flocking to see him. They're super interested in him. They're just huddling around him, crowding around him. The disciples back in Mark 6 have been have, have gone on mission and they've been uh, successful in that mission. Um, the religious leaders have not seemed to figure out a way to stop Jesus, although you get a sense that they want to. But up until this point, Jesus has just been victorious in every way. If you're following the NBA Finals, Jesus would be the Golden State Warriors right now. There's no stopping them. There's just no stopping Jesus. And then Jesus asks a critical question just, just prior to the verses we're going to look at today. And he just asks his disciples basically this. Who do you think I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of, you know, all of his disciples, speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah. And for the first time in the book of Mark, you have a declaration of Jesus' identity by someone other than the narrator or, or demons, actually, for that matter. Uh, Jesus, uh, Peter says it, you are the Messiah. And Jesus does something interesting with that. Because he knows that Peter's confession, although it's true, it comes with a certain agenda attached to it. Because he's observed all this stuff with Jesus. He's observed the crowds. He's seen the, the victory. He's seen the power. He's experienced some of the power in his own life. And so he ha he's, he's, he's excited. He senses the energy. This is a king in the making right here. And he just happens to be pretty well connected to the king. And if you're pretty well connected to the king... If you're part of his inner circle, then you can expect the kind of notoriety, the kind of power, the kind of, kind of prestige that would come with being closely connected to a king. And Peter, he just sees it all this way, and he's super excited that Jesus is the Messiah. He's on fire. And then Jesus pours a bunch of hot water, says some crazy stuff. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, he will rise again. And he says this plainly, which is just a word meaning it wasn't a parable. He wasn't, wasn't a second meaning. He just, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And then I'll rise again. And Peter has no idea what the rising again bit is all about. And so um, he just hears the suffering and all that stuff and the dying and rebukes Jesus saying, no, this is not going to happen. And you know how the story goes if you're familiar with it. Jesus then in turn rebukes Peter with very harsh, uh, very strongly um, 
actually saying, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but only the things of man. You have a clashing of agendas here. And Peter's agenda, thankfully, has risen to the surface. And this is good for him, but it's also very difficult. So that situation is kind of what leads us into our text this morning and leads me really to my first point this morning, which is simply that a disciple of Jesus has to lay down his agenda. A disciple of Jesus has to lay down personal agenda in order to follow him. Look at Mark 8.34. Let's read the passage. 8.34 through 9.1. Jesus says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So a disciple of Jesus lays down his personal agenda. And before I flesh out that agenda, look, look just real quick at verse 34 again, the, ver- the first part of it. Jesus calls the crowd, right? He says, in calling the crowd to him. Why does he call the crowd to him? I mean, he's having this personal, kind of seems like a private conversation with Peter and disciples about his identity. That blows up. That whole conversation doesn't go very well. And then now he's calling the whole crowd together. What's he doing here? Why is, why is he pulling the crowd in? What's happening, and by the way, it's never good. The crowd is not a good thing in Mark. It's, uh, they're fickle. They, they, they're super interested in Jesus. They're really wowed by what he does. But they never commit in Mark. They never commit to Jesus. They're, very, they, they're, they're just interested, but they keep their distance. So when Jesus calls the crowd in, that's that people. And I think what he's doing is he's placing Peter and his disciples back with the crowd again. He's saying, I can't, I can't treat you in a, in a real special way. I've got to put you back with the, the, this fickle, unbelieving crowd. Um, and therein actually lies, I think, some helpful discipleship coaching for us. I mean, we can look at Jesus and we can say, that's, that's very helpful in our own discipleship for anybody we might be discipling in our lives. Because you have, you have uh, Peter just confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, but then Jesus does not quickly affirm that faith. He actually prods at it a little bit, kind of wants to draw out, what do you mean by that, Peter? What do you believe? And then we know Peter does not believe exactly the same thing, doesn't believe that Jesus really is who he is. He doesn't really understand. And in the same way, we, we, in our discipleship of others, we just need to be careful not to... to uh, falsely affirm a faith that isn't really there yet. So I think of like even being a parent, I think of this as a dad, and I think, man, I, I want nothing more in my life for my boys than to love Jesus, like from their heart, love Jesus. Not learn how to look like they're loving Jesus or, or learn how to perform or what the right answers are. I want them to love Jesus. And in order for me to help them in that, I need to be careful not to to too quickly affirm what might look like the right thing when really it's, it's just on the surface still. 
And, and there's just some coaching there. I just think there's some, some good discipleship thought of let it work itself out. Your role is to tease out what is it you really believe. Challenge the faith and then encourage every good step that you see. But challenge that faith. Draw it out to help that person see really what do you believe in and is your agenda attached to that belief or are you willing just to lay that down? I think it's probably, my, my boys are really little still, so those conversations haven't gotten really deep yet. But I want to hang on to that. I want the Lord to give, give me wisdom, give us wisdom to, to just, as a parent, not to try to release all the tension in, their, in our kids' walk with the Lord or whoever. It could be, it can be your neighbor, coworker. It could be any kind of situation you're in. But let that land. Because Peter does say that Jesus is the Christ. But does he know what it means? Nope. He just doesn't know what it means yet. But he's learning. He's learning what it means. So, Jesus calls the crowd and he says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to deny yourself? I think it means roughly the same thing for Peter as it does for us. And I just think it means that we have to give up our agenda for our safety, our comfort, and esteem. Being highly esteemed by other people. We have to give up our agenda of safety, comfort, and esteem, things that are just so central to who we are. Why? Because these are the things that we naturally kind of revolve all of our decision-making around. And our whole lives get revolved around my safety, my comfort, and, and how I'm viewed by other people, my esteem. I want to be highly viewed by other people. And if we center our lives around those things, then ultimately those are the things that we worship. And Jesus knows this. And he's saying you've got to give all that up. You've got to be willing just to sacrifice that if you want to follow me. And if you think about it, that's a, that's a tough call. It's a tough call because, how, I mean, almost every decision we make, we think through, well, is it safe? Is it going to be, am I going to feel safe there? Or am I going to be comfortable there? You know, is that really going to make me, put me in an awkward situation or, or whatever? What are people going to think of me? I mean, we're constantly filtering our decisions through all of that. Jesus is saying, Jesus is just saying, lay that down. Lay down that whole agenda, all that bit, and just follow me. Not that these things are bad in and of themselves. I think God gives them to us a lot of times. He gives us safety and gives us comfort. He gives us those kinds of things. But, but our lives cannot revolve around those things and revolve around Jesus at the same time. He has to be there exclusively. Peter doesn't even realize at this point that this is, this is God he's talking to. He's not just a, a Messiah. He's not just a man king. This is, this is God in the flesh. Now, thankfully, we know this is God in the flesh. And Jesus knew he was God in the flesh. And if he's God, then nothing else can stand in the middle of our lives. Nothing else can stand in the middle of Peter's agenda except for Jesus. In the Old Testament, the way it's said is simply this. You will have... No other gods before me. When God's calling Israel to himself in the wilderness, it's that you'll have no other gods before me. This is the same sort of things. So, that's what it means to deny ourselves. The text goes on, totally attached to that. You cannot detach these two things. As we, as we deny ourselves at the same time, think of it this way, you deny yourself and you pick up your cross. This is, this is one one fluid motion. They happen together. It's like, it's like going swimming and getting wet. I mean, you can't go swimming without getting wet. 
You can throw a rock in the lake or you can go on a boat or go fishing or whatever, but you can't go swimming without getting wet. I know about dry suits. Forget about that for a second. For most of us, swimming and getting wet go together. They just can't happen without each other. And Jesus is saying this is all part of the same motion. And what is picking up your cross? Just to, just to think about that for a minute. I mean, a lot could be said for, what, for the cross and what it stands for, for sure. But I just want to zero in on the fact that the cross was a social statement. It's a social statement. Yes, it was a way to kill someone in torture and all that stuff, but there were lots of easier ways to kill someone. You could do it a lot quicker, not as messy, just get it done and, you're, and it's over with. The cross was not really about killing someone as much as it was how they're, how they're killing someone. And it was a social statement because as someone's walking along and they see someone up on a cross, the message of that person hanging on a cross is don't be associated, don't be like that person for one, don't be associated with that person and don't be associated with his associates. I mean, stay away from this guy, not good. It's, it's shame and it's humiliation. It's a social statement. So when Jesus is saying, you must pick up your cross, a way we can grab hold of what he's talking about is, is just, you're not going to fit in. If you're going to follow me, you are not going to fit in in this society. This culture will not accept you. Some will, obviously, yes. But as a whole, as a whole, you will not really fit in here. So embrace that. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be called all sorts of names. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be hated, perhaps, even by some. And Mark's readers knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. I mean, the Gospel of Mark um, really was a letter, and it was written for a particular church, uh, like a lot of the New Testament was written for a particular church or particular people. Mark was also written. It was most likely written by Peter, um, and it was written to uh, the church in Rome. And the church in Rome was currently suffering incredible persecution. Um, it was the Emperor Nero was, uh, was reigning at the time. And he was going after Christians um, big time because there was a, there was a fire in Rome. Uh, some of you who are into history know this story maybe even better than I do. But there was a fire in Rome and there was like a little bit of rumor that maybe... Maybe Nero started the fire for some kind of political reason, and Nero had to figure out how to get out of that whole situation, and he, he found Christians to be the best way to get out of getting out of that whole, uh, that whole political mess that he was in. And Tacitus, one of the uh, famous Roman historians, actually records some stuff about um, some of the act activities of uh, being a Christian in Rome during this time when, when Mark was written. And this is what he says. This is from Tacitus. He says, To suppress the rumor of arson, Nero fabricated scapegoats. And he punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All degraded and shameful practices collect and flourish in the capital. 
And here was, here's what Nero was doing. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. And then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for their incendiarism, just their practice of arson, uh, as for their antisocial tendencies, that is, because of their hatred for the human race. And their deaths were made farcical. They were dressed in wild animal skins. They were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. So stuck on a pole and started on fire. This is the experience for this, uh, this church in Rome. Despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied for it felt that they were being sacrificed as one man's brutality rather than to the national interest. So when these Christians are receiving the gospel of Mark, this is very literal for them when they hear Jesus say, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross. If anyone's going to follow me, you have to not deny yourself and pick up your cross. They were likely very afraid, uncertain. Is God, is God with us still? Did we misunderstand the gospel? What did we get wrong here? Families being torn apart, your neighbors being dragged out in the street in question or killed. You never knew who was going to be next. I mean, they were just under direct, intense persecution. Safety, comfort, esteem, the natural agenda of our life, gone, totally gone. And they just needed uh, affirmation. They needed to know, are we doing the right thing here? Are we doing the right thing? And they're reminded, yes, you are. They mistreated Jesus, and they'll mistreat Jesus' followers too. So just know that. And man, if you fast forward, I mean, let's fast forward 2,000 years to roughly, uh, to Woodbury, 2016. <laughs> just a very different situation, obviously. Like our context is so, so different. Historians um, aren't going to write a whole lot about the government hauling us out of our houses and, uh, and, and torching us uh, at most, I think historians might write about our bad traffic or how long we've had to wait for Costco to come into town or things that just aren't really that big of a deal. We just live in a different context now. So what do we do with this? What do we do with, with this, this very radical call to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, pick up our cross? I think we just grab hold of what God is trying to clarify here, which is just simply, you have an agenda in life. You just naturally have an agenda. And your agenda is that you are comfortable, that you're very safe, that people think very well of you. Are you willing to give that up? And you might not even get crucified if you give that up, but you're probably going to come under some, some kind of persecution of some sort. I just, can't, I just can't let, we just can't let our comfort make all of our decisions for us. They can't be the center of our world. And then see where that goes. See how that works itself out. So that's just the first point. And at a basic level, you can, after even saying that, you can still ask the question, well, then how? How does a person do this? How does a person deny himself and pick up his cross and, and follow Jesus? And I would say it's not simply an act of the will. It's not simply just something you just will yourself into doing. It's not suddenly a self, uh, uh, um, a righteousness by works in some way. And it's not a tiered Christianity. It's not like, here's the, the really super awesome Christians do this. They, they deny themselves and pick up their cross. And then the whatever over here 
maybe they're Christians, maybe. No, it's just, Jesus is just saying, this is what I'm calling you to. It's one calling and, and, and aspire to this. But it is not, those are not your righteous efforts that get you saved. It is still by faith that you can even do these things, that you can deny yourself and pick up your cross. Which leads me to the second point, which is simply a disciple of Jesus finds his or her identity ultimately in the gospel. How do you do this? Well, then who, who are you? A more basic question is who are you? Because that is how you live this out. That's how faith lives itself out here. Um, and I'm looking at verses 35 and 36, which just says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? A disciple of Jesus finds his or her identity ultimately in the gospel. This, uh, these two verses are like Proverbs. They're proverbial statements. Um, the Greek word there is actually helpful uh, to know. It's, it's suke, which is where we get the word psychology. It just kind of derives from there. And life, life is talking there about your identity more than anything else. I mean, hence psychology. That's where we're, we're pulling that word. It's, it's who you are. It's your personhood. It's your actual self. Like, that's the idea of life. It's more than flesh and blood and your heart pumping. It's your identity. And the word play with life in these two verses is meant to kind of tease out a little bit. How do you, how do you view your identity? Who are you is the question. On the one hand, here's what you can do. You can save your life. You can try to form your own, by trying to find or form your own identity, which is wrapped up in the world's value system, which is totally tied to your performance. It's totally tied to how well you do, the quality of your marriage, how your kids turn out, how much money you have saved by the time you retire. These kinds of things are, are how you can go out there and you can try to save your life and wrap up your identity in those things. That's what he's talking about there. And if you do that, it can seem like you have control of it. You have control of how, how your life works because you, uh, you have, have, you're trying to save your life. And it comes down to how well you do in these various things. And while it seems like control, I would liken it a little bit more to like maybe a sailboat. I'm not a sailor, so I'm not going to go too far with this. But a sailboat without a rudder, sitting on a lake with an inexperienced guy like me sitting on it. And the wind blows and, and away the boat goes and, and the wind is fatherhood. And my whole life, my whole world, my whole identity is being a dad. And like I want to be the best dad in the world. And I want my kids to love me. And, and so much is consumed with like, I'm a dad. This is me. This is who I am. And it's all my decisions are based on that. And then the, the, the wind blows a little different direction. And I'm like, it's my occupation. And it's like I'm the best thing at what I do. And, and, and my sense of worth, my sense of value kind of comes down to that. And the, the wind blows this way and the wind blows that way. And there's no direction to it until finally the, the wind just topples the boat over in the middle of the lake. And there it sits. And, and that's, I think, really what's going on when we try to find our identity in this world. It just, and you lose yourself in the process. It's like at the end of the day, who are you? Who, 
Who are you for real? And of course, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. And you know that, and, and I think you understand that being, being a, a mother or, or being a student, I mean, you just want to be the best that you can be, for sure, um, for the glory of God. But you're, you're not tying your identity, your worth, your personhood, your personality to those things. That is what it looks like to try to save your life. And I will just say, because if you do try to tie your personality, your personhood, who you are, your identity to those things, you're, you're kind of just, again, setting that thing up as a god to you. This is what matters more than anything else. This is what you revolve your life around. And it's, it can be dangerous. John says it this way in chapter 12, 25 of, of the book of John. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's getting at the same thing that Mark's saying here in our passage. So if the performance of your life is where you find your identity, you find your sense of value and purpose and all those things, Jesus is saying you've effectively given up your soul to find that stuff. You're in danger of losing your very soul in finding those things or finding yourself that way. Now the flip side is really good news for us, and that is that Christ has offered us an entirely new identity. Identities are given to you. It's just, you're just, you just are who you are, and Christ has given us a whole new identity. Simply by putting our faith in Jesus and what he has done. So my identity is that once I was dead in my sins, once I was hardened in my own heart, dead but then made alive in Christ Jesus. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So in Christ, catch that, we have a totally new identity. You are a different person altogether, and it's not tied to your performance. It's tied to his performance, tied to Jesus' performance, and he was perfect. So I'm freed up from all of that. So the person in Christ, who's in Christ, who's getting a sense of this, can look at this world and say, this is great, I'm here. <laughs> like I'm, God has ordained me to be here at this time, and, and regardless of the circumstances that brought me here, I'm, a, I'm created in Christ to be here right now. I'm going to enjoy the good gifts he's given, like Thomas has been, Pastor Thomas has been talking about in Ecclesiastes. Enjoy the good gifts that God has given. But I will not center my life around those things. I'm going to center my identity and my life around the gospel. It's completely different. That's where I find my sense of value, my sense of purpose, my decision-making, my personality, it comes out of the gospel because I don't find myself in my performance anymore. I was just dead in my sins, and now I've been made alive in Christ. So that's gone. And you're freed up, man. I think you're really freed up to just enjoy the time that you have when you don't have to worry about how you're performing and how you're stacking up in this world. That's not really who you are. At the end of the day, you can fail. You can fail in lots of ways and be like, well, but thank God I'm in Christ. I still am who I am. I'm still in Jesus. And if I have a few accomplishments in my life, I just view them like Paul viewed his, 
which is simply, whoever, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Just Philippians chapter 3. So C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit, this whole identity in Christ thing in mere Christianity. And, and he says this, and I, I like a lot of what he says, um, but he sums it up this way. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, then I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. In other words, you become your true self. Nevertheless, you must not go to Christ for the sake of a new self. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you're not really going to him at all. In other words, if your goal in going to Christ is just to try him out and to see kind of how this affects my personality and how this helps me out, you're not really going to Jesus. You're not really. You're really just trying to figure out how, to, how, how does Jesus meet my agenda? How does Jesus help me fulfill what I want my life to look like? We just go to Jesus. You let him shape you. How do you show up? You just show up empty, broken, receiving his love, loving him. And in that, that's how, that's how you start to fit, find out who you really are. So you don't have to be one way with certain people and another way with other people because you're not performing for anybody anymore. It just doesn't really matter. You are who you are in Christ and that's eternal. So in this way, I mean, if we, you keep the gospel at the center of your life, that's who you are. Well, denying yourself, picking up your cross, now that's doable because my agenda has changed. I'm just a different person altogether. Um, I saw several years ago, there was, a, there was a, 10 years ago probably, I was working a, a job at a, um, as a professional um, coffee pourer. They call them baristas, but I prefer the word professional. I was, at a, I was freshly out of college and looking for a job, and I ended up over at Caribou for a few months and um, never learned how to make many drinks. I poured, I'm really just poured coffee for the most part. And uh, there, was a, there was a gentleman who would come in on a regular basis, and his name was Walter, I think. It might not have been. I don't know. But um, uh, that's what rings a bell to me. Um, and he would come in. He was, he was well past retirement age, an elderly man, um, by himself, driving a bright yellow uh, Ford Mustang GT 500. Just leased it. Just got off the lot beautiful race car and this little old man and it's really a funny picture this little old man would kind of like crawl out of this car and come come into uh come into caribou and get his cup of coffee and and then he would talk talk our ears off he's really nice but he would talk our ears off about his glory days and and like all the things that he'd experienced and um all the ladies he'd been with and all these places he'd gone and and he just loved kind of talking about all that stuff and he drove this sports car and clearly this man had an identity, and he was clearly hanging on to that identity. It was very obvious. This, these are the ways, this, this defines you. These are the things that make you you. But it was very strange because at the same time, he, was, he had terminal cancer. And so he would show up, and eventually he, he, would, he would drag along his oxygen uh, tank. And it was, a, it was a strange, just a weird sight. You don't see that kind of thing 
every day. And he, he'd pull his, his oxygen tank in and, and um, he'd sit down. After we chatted a bit, he'd go sit down in his, co- in his chair. And one time even he, he just stopped. He just sat in his chair such a long time and his color started to, to go from his face. And we're like calling the ambulance and rushing over there. And is Walter okay? Like what's going on? And he kind of snapped out of it and he got in his racing car and, and drove home and, and came back the next day like he usually did. And it slowly started to dawn on me. Um, like Walter didn't have any family around. He always came by himself. He'd talk all about all he had done, all he had accomplished. He probably was a really fun guy to be around, I imagine. Um, but here he is, and he's coming to Caribou to die, basically. Eventually, he's just going to, he's, he's, he's got days. He really just, it could be any day now. And it became really sad. It was just like this weird, it was just weird. And I sat down, I, uh, several times I tried to talk to him about just his soul and the state of his soul and what's next, Walter? Like, <laughs> what's coming up around the corner? And it made him very anxious to talk about that kind of stuff. He, he politely refused. He's like, I don't talk about that, you know. Let's talk about my car. Let's talk about, you know, let's get back to the things that I like to talk about. And it was just this sad, realistic picture of what it looks like if someone is going to to find their identity ultimately in the stuff of this world. It's just, you look at it and you're like, it's empty. It's really, you know it's empty, but you're not, you still won't even admit that it's empty. And um, that, that was my experience with Walter. I was never able to break through and have really good conversation with him, but I tried on several occasions. And, um, I, it was, but it was a warning to my soul, to, in my own heart. And it should be a warning really to all of us that you, you go that route and it's an empty thing. And who knows who you are at the end of the day. Lastly, Jesus gives us some motivation to faithfully follow him in this way. Because we need some motivation at times. We need to be reminded of why, uh, why, this is, why this is good. Picking up our cross, following Jesus, finding our identity in him. Jesus says in verses 38 to 9-1, he says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Third point is just simply remember that Jesus will, Jesus will ultimately vindicate his people. He's got it all in his hands. He's got it all under control. He's going to vindicate his people. In verse 38, Jesus takes on kind of the tone of an Old Testament prophet, right? He's uh, calling them an adulterous and sinful generation. This is the kind of stuff you read about in Isaiah and Ezekiel, and, he's always, and they're always railing against the leaders, calling them adulterous and, and a sinful generation. And Jesus is kind of doing the same thing. He's, he's calling the leaders out, and, he, and he's kind of placing them in the same kind of... Uh, bad leader category because they have up until this point rejected Jesus and they've rejected the gospel. And in Mark 7, go back a few chapters, um, Jesus actually quotes Isaiah and he says, they have honored me with their lips but their hearts are far from me and in vain do they worship me. And we just know from the gospels that the, the religious leaders and those who would subscribe to their same way of living they didn't really have a genuine love for God. There was no real genuine love for God because God showed up and they rejected him. 
What they did love was their life here and now. They loved their wealth. They loved the honor of other people looking at them a certain way. They loved uh, their, their position in society and their influence. They loved all these other things. And religion or God or whatever was just kind of a way for them to keep getting those things. And then Jesus shows up, proclaims the gospel, and what do they do? They reject him. And they weren't the only ones who did. I think Jesus is saying he's calling them that, but then there's also this connection between the word ashamed, ashamed and, and uh, deny kind of have the same root in Greek, and, and it's, it's a little wink, it's a little bit of an indicator that, oh, Peter did the same thing. Peter does the same thing. He's ashamed of Jesus when he's on trial. His life becomes way too important to him, the, his actual flesh and blood life, and he has to separate himself from Jesus in a very public way. So in that way, Peter isn't a whole lot different than the religious leaders, unwilling to relinquish the control of their lives to him. And of course, Jesus comes back and he restores Peter. You know, I mean, the, the end of the story is really good and it's all part of the process for Peter. But in that moment, and, and in his heart, he's not a whole lot different than the religious leaders that would say, no to Jesus. Nope, not going to happen. Not believe in that gospel. Not going not to accept you. In fact, I'm quite ashamed to be associated with you. And Jesus, I think, just wants us to see that in following him, man, it's not, it's not a both-and relationship with him. You can't have both the world and the control of your life, your comfort, all your things that you want, your dreams, your personal aspirations, and have Jesus at the same time. Like, you can't do these things at the same time. It's exclusive. It's either or, not and and both. And you think about, uh, you know, some, some young man walking into his, the, the recruitment office and saying, I want to join the military. And here are my conditions. <laughs> I don't do weekends. I'm off at five, and I don't want to get into any dangerous situations. Um, and that's pretty much it. Otherwise, I'm yours. You know, I'm good to go. It's just not how it works. They would be laughed out of that little office very quickly. And in the same way, I think we, we, we try to do that on some level with Jesus where we say, I'm all yours except for this, 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 and this other thing over here because I have a certain agenda I can't give up. I have a certain identity that's really important to me and it's important that I maintain it a certain way. But, God, but Jesus knows the difference. He knows that if, if, if you're ashamed of him, if you reject his gospel, then when the Son of Man comes back, that same ashamedness or the same rejection can be expected from him. But at the same time, man, the very end of this, this passage here, 9, chapter 1, or chapter 9, verse 1, is just so encouraging. It's, just, it's meant to be an encouraging word for Mark's readers in Rome. This is where I get the idea of vindication. Jesus just says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What's he talking about? He's just talking about his resurrection. He's just saying, you don't know what's coming yet, but you're going to see it. The kingdom of, you've heard of resurrection, but you don't understand how real it is. But you're going to see it, and Peter's going to see it someday. 
And this is, a, this is an encouraging word. He doesn't know it yet in the story. Mark's readers know it. We know it. Je Peter doesn't quite know it yet. But Jesus will rise from the dead. And he will vindicate those who are in Christ. And that's why we have confidence. That's why we have joy. That's why we look at our, our, you know, our trivial agendas and we can say, man, I can lay that down for Jesus. Like, I can actually do that because, because of the resurrection. Because at the end of the day, I just know, like, I'm a whole new person, a whole new creation. I'm going to be raised to life. I can lay down my agenda and follow Jesus. I can find my, I'm happy to find my identity in Jesus because the story ends well there. And, and you, get, you get so much with it. So, death is no longer to be feared for, for Mark's readers. It's, it, it, there's some fear, obviously, in our flesh, but it's no longer a controlling fear. Because the same power that rose Jesus from the grave now lives in you. And your future is completely secure in Christ. So deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. Let your identity be, be me, be Christ. You're in Christ. That can't be taken from you. And know that Jesus is coming back and he's going he's to vindicate his followers for any mistreatment you, you endured. That's fine. It's all going to be made right again. The cost is very little compared to the reward at the end of the day. And, and, and that, that's what it means to follow Jesus. There's cost. And it can feel like a lot. But the reward is great. And he's in control. So... Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I'm just reminded, God, that, uh, uh, that discipleship is, we're just always relearning things we've, we've maybe heard before. Uh, like a passage like this, Jesus, we just know, yeah, it means giving up my life to follow, follow you. And yet, there's always more that, that 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 can mean to us, Lord. And so uh, I just pray that your spirit would, would carry out the intended effect, Jesus, of your word, that we would repent of idolatry where there's idolatry, Jesus. We would be quick to say, man, I don't, I don't want to lose myself chasing this world, looking for some identity, looking for something I can hang on to um, that I can control and in the process lose myself. Um, so if, if that's us this morning, Jesus, help us, just give us the gift of repentance to, to turn from those things, Lord, and also help us just to celebrate um, you and looking forward to, to you, God, and keeping our eyes fixed on you, knowing that, that um, you control all of this. You control our lives, God. There's, we're never outside of your, your care, um, and you're a good God giving us, who loves to give good gifts to his children, Jesus. Let us just trust that those things let, let us trust those things to your discretion and just find ourselves in you and love you and adore you, worship you. Um, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.